in a minute we're going we're gonna to read uh, the first portion of John chapter 5, but I'll, I'll begin this way by telling you about a guy named Augustine, St. Augustine. He is an early church father. He was born in 354 um, A.D. and lived to 430 A.D. He, um, he is one of the um, men in the church that we owe a great debt to in the history of the church. He articulated um, what the church believed, um, probably at that time better than anybody else did. He wrote um, some treatise on the Trinity and some other doctrinal things that the church believed. He was the one to really articulate them um, in a way that they had never been articulated before. But that wasn't always Augustine's life. He, he um, lived a lot of his life as an unbeliever, particularly as a young man, and he wrote... One of the things he wrote is an autobiography called Confessions. And there really had not ever been an autobiography like that up to this point because it, it recounted not just the facts or the history of his life. It recounted the um, spiritual and emotional journey of his life. And so he writes about these longings that he had from a very young age and what he did with these longings, how he sought to satisfy the longings, and, and eventually where these longings led him. And they led him to a conversion, uh, to a place where he, by faith, trusted in Jesus. But you, you hear this story that Augustine tells. It's, it's fascinating. But he ends, uh, t towards the end, he makes one of these statements. And um, as he, listen, he'd been preoccupied with, with all kinds of things. He, uh, let's see, in the, in the day he was caught up in the philosophies, you know, the Stoic and Platonic philosophies of the day, and all the difference between the mind and the body and the soul. And so he sought all the pleasure that a body could find. He sought, um, he was preoccupied with power and um, status and wealth, all those things. So he gets to the very end, and he makes this statement. It's a famous statement. You've probably heard it. It says, you have made yourself, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. you we, we were made, God, you made us. And not only did you make us, you made us for yourself. And there's this restlessness we feel until we come to rest in you. And I tell you that because I think that statement very well captures this account that we're going to read in John's Gospel. John's been introducing us to, to Jesus. He has been announcing who Jesus is for the first four chapters. Now what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to authenticate who he is. He's, he's going to begin um, to, uh, to tell who he is more explicitly, and we're going to see the, the dividing lines separate between those who reject him and those who believe in him. And so this begins that portion of John's gospel. I'm going to begin reading in, in chapter 5. And if you follow along with me, we'll read the first um, 17 verses, and then we'll, we'll pick up with the rest of it next week. John writes this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, 
in Aramaic called Bethesda, and it has five roofed colonies. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, uh, while I'm going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took his bed and he walked. Now the day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me that said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they said to him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more. But nothing worse may happen to you. Well, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now. And I am working. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. I want to talk about four things from this passage. Um, they all start with an S, which I'm slightly embarrassed about, but I'll tell you what they are. The first is I want to talk about Sabbath longings. I want to then talk about stirring waters, and then startling realities, and then what I would call sensibilities that are provoked. The setting is simply this. They, the John um, is telling about when Jesus goes to Jerusalem at the time of a feast, but we don't know what the feast is. And I think it's because John doesn't want us to focus on which feast it is. He wants us to see the event and the place of the event. And so it's the temple area, and just north of the temple is um, northeast of the temple is a, is a gate in the temple wall, and it's called the Sheep Gate. And if you come through the Sheep Gate, you come to this, um, this pool that was there. It was a spring-fed pool. It had five colonnades, and it was called, they called it Bethesda, which means house of outpouring or house of uh, cassette, house of, house of grace, house of mercy. And uh, the pool was, if you can think about it this way, it was like a sanitarium. It was, it, it was, oh, a hospital of sorts, but nobody ever got well. It was the place that if you were paralyzed, you were an invalid, you, you know, you, this is where you were, and you went there because they believed that there were healing properties associated with the stirring of the waters. It is actually kind of this mix between sort of some Hebrew legend and Greek mythology. Probably um, goes back to and is rooted in this Greek pantheon, Roman Greek pantheon, and there's a god in the Greek pantheon called Asclepius. And he was known as Apollo's son, and in statues honoring Asclepius from the, from the ancient days, 
you'll always see a staff in his hand, and there's a serpent wrapped around the staff. And it was a sign for healing and for medicine. In fact, it is still the sign used today in lots of places, medical schools and hospitals. You'll see it. You'll see the staff, and you'll see the snake around it. It, you know, it points to a place that offers healing or a place that offers medicine. And there was a, a tradition associated with this mythology, and you can find it in chapter uh, in verse 4, uh, chapter 5, verse 4. So if you'll look there with me in chapter 4, I'll we'll let that set in for a second. Everybody have chapter, I mean, verse 4 queued up? There's no verse 4, right? Okay. I'll tell you where you find it. It's in the footnote in the bottom of your Bible. Uh, you, and I don't have any footnotes on the screen, so bring your Bibles, all right? So, um, but there's a footnote in the bottom of it. And here's what the footnote says. The, the footnote says it's not, verse 4 is not found in the earliest manuscripts. If you have a King James Version, it's actually in there. But it's not likely a part of what John wrote. And so how this happens is, is 300, 400 years later, the scribes are copying uh, the text. And they realize, oh, the readers might not understand the legend that goes with what the waters were. So they scribble out this uh, thing in the margin to describe it for the, the readers. It's not an uncommon thing. It just those marginal notes didn't always make it into the Bible, into our, into our copies. And so I would say this. It is, you know, verse 4, if you have it in your Bible, it, I don't think it's inspired, but I don't think it's heresy. I don't think it's wrong. I think it probably actually points to a true description of what people believed at the time. It says this. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain sessions, see, uh, certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had, which that explains why the man answered Jesus the way that he answered him. The scene is this. Jesus is at the temple, but he doesn't go where you, you know, where most religious people go. He doesn't even go where you would expect him to go. He doesn't go into the temple. He doesn't go to where the, you know, the priests are. And he, he goes to the place where all the broken people were. He goes to the place that, listen, most, we, none of us would have, would have gone there. It would have smelled bad. It was uh, filled with sick people and in, infirmities. And um, it was not on top of that. It was, a, it was a pagan place. And so you would be actually unclean if you went there. But that's where Jesus goes. He goes into the temple area, heads straight to, heads straight to the pagan section, the place where people were caught up in superstition and ancient myths. And then what he does is he goes to a specific guy in the midst of all of these people that are there waiting for healing. And they're called invalids, which is a great English word translation for the word behind it, because invalid is a compound word in English that means invalid. Not, not useful. Just, just people that, that take up resources. That's what the way they would have been seen. And this guy's been an invalid for 38 years. And, and that's longer than most people lived in the first century. It's a long time this guy has been an invalid. And so Jesus goes to him, 
asks him if he wants to be healed, which is a fascinating question. You know, he's laying there. You know, part of you think, well, of course he wants to be healed. That's why he's there. But maybe not. You know, the text says Jesus not only saw him, but he, but he knew him. Knew just how long he'd been there. Knew all about him. I, I think it's a valid question. I, I think there's a question in which, one sense, you say, okay, well, why are you here this morning? Do you want to be healed? I don't know that everybody does. I think there's a sense in which, listen, I'm not trying to over-psychologize the text, but, I I mean, I've known people long enough, so have you. Some people just don't want to get better. Because they don't know what they'd do if they got better. Their identity has become the thing they are. Do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? So the guy, as he responds, he doesn't know who Jesus is, and, and it may be that he's, you know, going through his old, you know, commiserating. Oh yeah, you know, I, I I come here all the time, and nobody will help me into the water, and it's everybody else's fault. And I'm not trying to downplay the guy is has had a hard life, a harder life than I'll ever know. I'm not saying that. I just think he's a whiner. Okay. I mean, I don't really like him. I mean, I've been with him, I've been wrestling with him all week, and I don't really like him. And I'm so, I mean, I am. I'm sorry. And I'll be the first person. I mean, he may be the greatest guy in heaven if he's there. And I'll walk up to him and be the first to apologize. But I don't really like this guy. I mean, not only is it, you know, I mean, it's a yes or no question. Do you want to be healed? Yes or no? Maybe he thinks, well, I, I need to tell Jesus my sad story. And then what Jesus, maybe he'll stick around here long enough and then, you know, throw me in the water when it stirs. Never finds out, you know, doesn't find out Jesus' name, doesn't thank him, or at least the text doesn't tell us he thanks him, and then he goes and rats him out later, and I don't like him. And I kept thinking, well, Jesus, why did you go to this guy? I'm sure there were, I mean, a lot of people more worthy to be healed. I mean, go find a single mom and her kids or something there. I mean, why this guy? So he heals him. And then what happens is the man's questioned by religious leaders carrying, you know, because he's, he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath, um, which is, we'll talk about that in a minute. And then the man, he blames Jesus for his Sabbath violation because, but he doesn't know Jesus' name because Jesus has slipped into the crowd. I mean, this, this is how they were. There's a couple of ways to respond when somebody's healed, okay? One is, um, Oh my goodness, you're healed. That's awesome. Let me celebrate with you. You know? The other is, you know, I knew he was faking all along. Just a big faker. I mean, those seem to be two reasonable responses to me. The part that's not reasonable to me are the people that go, well, I I don't care if he was healed or not. The guy was breaking the Sabbath law by carrying his mat. And we need to get to the bottom of that. I mean, do you know people like that? Don't say their name out loud. So that's what's going on, and then Jesus finds a guy in the temple after that and, and, and tells him the very hard saying we'll have to deal with. Because um, the guy's walking around the temple. He'd probably never been in there before. And he says, hey, you look well. You're doing well. You're healed. Now, go sin no more so that nothing further or worse happens. 
So the guy discovers Jesus' name in that encounter. Then he runs back to the Pharisees to tell the Pharisees who it was that healed him. Says it was his name was Jesus. Verse 16 is the summary statement of what the Jewish leaders were doing. They were persecuting Jesus, which means they were harassing him, interrogating him, um, threatening him. And then verse 17, Jesus is going to answer um, this activity of the religious leaders with a statement that begins um, this long portion, the last bit of, of John 5, in one of the most significantly um, potent and powerful theological statements Jesus will make about himself. We'll spend next week talking about that. And so the four things, though, Sabbath longings, stirring water, startling realities, sensibilities provoke Sabbath longings. We have, all of us, a longing for rest and relief. In fact, that's one of John's points, I think, that it is why he's telling us that this took place on the Sabbath. And it becomes a source of contention for the religious leaders. All the Gospels talk about Jesus' miracles that he did on the Sabbath, or the teaching he did on the Sabbath, or the work he did on the Sabbath. We see the Sabbath to them, that, that was the day of rest. It was a day of worship, a celebration for, you know, this is what it was meant to be, a celebration for what God had done. It was a sign of man's dependence upon God. That is why God instituted it with his people. You have to trust God. And so built into the rhythm of your week was an entire day that you did no work and you acknowledged your dependence upon God. You worshipped him. Your work was, was worshiping Him. It, it was an act of faith. It was, it was to rest in what God had done, acknowledging all that He had done and that He had done it all. It was a rest from sowing your crops when you needed to get the seed into the ground. It, it was a rest from, from harvesting your crops when you needed to get the bounty out of the field. It was the reminder that, listen, you don't bring about your own blessing in life. It, it comes from God. And listen, at the same time, it is not just a ceasing from physical activity so that you can engage in an entire day of emotional anxiety. You know, where you sit around and go, oh, I really should be out in the field today, but you know God, He, you know, doesn't want us to be, and you know, He's worried all day about all the things you... That's not it either. There's a physical resting, a spiritual resting, an emotional resting by faith in God. We're dependent upon Him for every breath we take. It was meant to remind us of that. In fact, all of the law was given to us to tell us who God is, to tell us of His holiness to clearly reveal to us what his righteous demands are. You know, the, the law, um, Romans chapter 2, Paul will say, we're actually born with, with the law written on our hearts. The, the, the written biblical law, it, what it does is it articulates, it, it, it puts words on paper to what is embedded in our hearts by our creation as, you know, by virtue of being created in the image of God. We're born with God's law written on our hearts. What this means is that you don't need somebody to tell you 
that you don't live up to God's standard. You don't need somebody to tell you that the world around you is broken. You don't need somebody to tell you that your life is broken. But you're not how you're supposed to be. You're born with a longing for something better, for something whole, for, for some fulfillment. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. He, he, he talks about it like this homesickness we all have for a place that we've never been, but we know it exists because we were created for it. In fact, all the great stories, literature and songs and epic movies, I mean, they're all they're these epic stories where, you know, things are wrong and, and there's a quest for what's right and then a hero comes and he saves the day. And All the great stories are echoes of the true story. The, the longings we have for the real story that we were created for. You're born wanting more. You're born with those longings, divine longings of how things are supposed, supposed to be. But the problem is we go looking for them ourselves. We go looking to satisfy these longings. We, we, we go looking for them in the world. We go looking for them in superstitions and myths and formulas and human inspirations. And, and listen, man has those longings, and in a very physical way, this man has those longings, he knows, listen, he, physically he knows what's wrong with the world. He knows what's wrong with himself. And his longings have brought him to this pool and his hopes are in a stirring water. But Jesus is going to reveal to him his, his, his hopes are in the wrong place. You know, we're all looking for stirring waters in one way or the other. There was a legend attached to the reason why the, the waters stirred. Uh, it was a myth, really. The truth is that the water was supplied by springs, and the way the springs would release the water, it would periodically produce this stirring in the, in the springs. It, you know, if there's one thing we know about humanity, right? We're determined to find what we're looking for, and we do not let the facts stand in our way. The religious leaders... They knew the paganism that was associated with that pool. I mean, that's why they wouldn't go over there. They, you know, they, they knew, listen, the, this myth, this legend about the pool was in direct opposition to their theology about God, but they tolerated it. They turned a blind eye to it. But maybe they didn't have the guts enough to stand up against it, or maybe this. Maybe they felt like, you know, like they did in everything else. They were hedging their bets because, you know, and maybe there is some key out there. Maybe there is some secret to be unlocked. Maybe there is some knowledge to find that, that brings meaning to all of these longings that I have. We still do that today. Even though the Bible tells us and our hearts tell us because God's design is built into us. In fact, Ecclesiastes says eternity's written on our hearts. There's a restlessness in everybody's soul, a knowledge that we listen. We know we should be perfect, and we're not perfect. And there's this itch that everybody, all of us, are trying to scratch. And, and, and listen, religious people, they scratch it by doing religious things. And begin to keep a tally of all the things they're doing right. And you know, if, if I do it enough right, maybe that'll fulfill this longing I have. And the people that aren't religious, they're looking for it too. They just don't find it in religious things. 
in one sense, we're all looking for stirring waters. But Jesus comes, he tells this man, he tells you, he tells me, you're looking in the wrong place. Your hope is not in the stirring waters. Don't look there. There's a stirring in your soul, though. There's a stirring in your life. There's a stirring. Listen, you know things are wrong. You know you can't make them right. There's a sin you can't defeat. There's a habit you can't break. There's happiness you can't find. There's significance you can't achieve. There are ideals that you have about your career or your marriage or your family or your, or your parenting. Or your, and you can't seem to attain to them. That's stirring. That's the work of God in your life. That longing is the longing to be in sync with the one who created you, with for which the purpose in sync with the purpose for which he created you, in sync with a world that you were created for. And the one to heal you, John is saying, the one to heal you, he has come. The word has been made flesh, and God came down and dwelt among us, and he came to reclaim what was broken and to heal what's damaged and to atone for what is stained by sin and to reclaim you for Himself and to reconcile you with God. Here's the startling reality of the text. We have a greater need than we realize. See, the man's need is greater than he even knows. I mean, he is physically healed. But he needs to be restored eternally. I mean, that's why Jesus will say what he says to him in verse 14. And it reads harsh. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What? There's two things about this. One, the text reads... And literally tells us that, that this physical ailment that he has is a result of sin. Very possibly, it, it, it's a direct correlation. And listen, consequences to sin are real. And sometimes our sin has real and lasting and direct consequences in this life. That is true. But it does not mean that we begin drawing lines between, well, my, you know, I had this accident, or I had this sickness come upon me, or I had to, and so it must be the result of some sin that I committed. That's not what it's saying, because that is an unbiblical response to suffering and illness in our life. Listen, the man's been an invalid for 38 years, whatever it is, probably paralyzed. And it may mean he's. His whole life. Chapter 9, we'll get to it in a couple weeks. The disciples will say to Jesus about a blind man. So, so Jesus tells this blind man, is he blind because he sinned or was it his parents that sinned? And Jesus says, no, that's not, neither, that's not, no. This man's blindness, this man's blindness is accomplishing far more than your sight is. Because this man's blindness is going to bring glory to God. See, sin, this is what we mean. Sin's affected everything. There's not one part of creation that's not stained by sin, not one part of who you are that hasn't been skewed and broken by sin. So, in one sense, 
Sin is behind all of it. I mean, we are born dying. And so whether this man's paralysis was a direct result of a rebellious sin or a reckless decision in no way implies all sickness or disease is, whether physical or, or psychological or emotional, not, not, we don't directly correlate those to some specific sin a person's committed. Sometimes it's true that is the case. But it's not the rule. The world's broken. Our lives are broken. That's true. We all need healing. A healing that's greater than a physical healing or emotional healing or psychological healing. We need healing that is eternal. Listen, this man's greatest need was not to be able to walk in this life. His greatest need was to dance for eternity with Jesus. That's his greatest need. And Jesus' statement about sinning no more points to that. Your, your greatest problem is not your paralysis. Your greatest problem is your sin. Sin no more, which is actually impossible because John will write later in his letter and say, listen, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar, which means you're sinning. But you do need your sin problem healed. You do need your sin illness to be healed. It means you have to recognize your problem. It means you have to know that you can't solve it. You, you have to come to the place of a desperation that your longing, your true longing, is in tune with what your true problem is. Your greatest need is not the solution to your current crisis or the satisfaction of your selfish desire or the longings that you have that you think can be fulfilled with better health or more money or greater achievement or better self-esteem or self-image or even changing your past or rewriting your story or improving yourself. Your greatest need is not needs that improve your life now. It's the need you have for security, for eternity, a rest of rest, a Sabbath, that cannot be bought or worked for or satisfied by anything you do or anything you find or anything you achieve. You need a rest that comes only by grace and only through faith and only in Jesus. You have a need for a rest that is eternally secure and infinitely satisfying. You have longings. Listen, you have longings that cannot be satisfied in this life. You have longings that are bigger than this life. They're eternal longings. And listen, we're, we have broken lives and restless hearts. The man's life was broken, but it was not ultimately his greatest need. His hope was in the wrong place. He believed his life would be fixed, his problem would be solved, with the stirring of the water. But the stirring that really mattered was the stirring in his soul. That's the one he needed to pay attention to. That was where, that's what would lead him to the healing he needed to find. Again, you might be waiting for some stirring to happen in your life. Some opportunity or some big break or some change in your circumstance. Or you're focused on the wrong need. You actually have a greater need. 
And that can only be healed by responding to the stirring of your soul. Because that's the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the activity of God in your life. Not to heal the circumstances in your life, although you might do that. But to heal your soul for eternity. Well, it is amazing the response, like I said, that it brings from the religious leaders. All of their sensibilities are provoked. And Jesus is revealing, he's, by his very presence, and by the words that he will say, and the things that he will do, that is a reality that will either be embraced or rejected. This theme emerges, the separation between those that accept him and those that reject him is, is going to be made more distinct as we go through John. And there's this controversy over the Sabbath. Jesus claims that God's still at work. He says God did rest on the seventh day after the Sabbath. Genesis 2 tells us that. Genesis 3, though, man sins. God goes back to work. Redemption is set in motion. God takes up residence and presence with his people in the Old Testament. God becomes man and dwells among us in the New Testament. And at the time of writing John 5, Jesus had not yet done the greatest work that he came to do, and that is to die on the cross to lay dead in a grave for three days and then to rise again. The cross, he will say, is finished. And yet Jesus is still at work. Even having taken a seat at the right hand of the Father, the Bible tells us he's making intercession for us always. Listen, I said the Sabbath was a day of rest. It was a celebration of God's work, your dependence and faith and trust in Him. The religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders throughout the centuries had hijacked the Sabbath as they did with all the rest. They actually made the Sabbath something you do. I mean, rather than a celebration of what God's done by following the many rules that they'd attached to the Sabbath, Sabbath became something that you kept. It became something you performed. It became work that you did. And religion always succeeds at taking what God has done and repackaging it in a way that man can take credit for it. As legalism, extra-biblical requirements by which we judge others and we set our own standards of spirituality. And listen, for years, I used to say, man, those legalists, you know what? We're all legalists. All of us have our legalism. All of us have our own standards by which we judge other people and judge ourselves and make ourselves feel good. Well, at least I didn't do those things. Here's the Sabbath irony. You want to know what it is? Jesus isn't telling them, I'm here to do away with the Sabbath. He's not saying, I'm here to tell people, rebel against the Sabbath. You know, um, you know, down with the religious leaders. It's not a protest. You know what he's saying? I don't want you to have less Sabbath. I want you to have more Sabbath. Your problem is not your Sabbath. Your problem is your Sabbath is way too low. You need more of it. Jesus will say, I am the Sabbath. I am your rest. As believers, we know, listen, we are saved 
by grace. We're resting in His work, but because of the human tendency to want to do everything ourselves, we create, we list give, we list keep, we, we remove ourselves from grace by so many ways. Jesus says, I want you to have more Sabbath. I want you to know more rest. I want you to know what it is that I accomplished everything you need and every longing you have is found in me. Like the writer of Hebrews would say, our lives are in, in, in Christ are a life of rest. He, say, he says, the writer in Hebrews 4, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. God did this. When you lay it aside, come to the place of realizing, you know what, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't find it. I can't buy it. I can't achieve it. I have to be dependent on what someone else has done. And by faith, I believe in what Jesus has done. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe he paid for my sins. I believe that I am forgiven. And I believe salvation comes only through the sacrifice that the Son of God has made. And I don't contribute at all to that. You know, I thought about this guy in John 5 all week. Kept wondering, why this guy? Seemed like there'd be somebody so much more grateful, so much more deserving, so much more worthy the healing of the Son of God. Which, by the way, we don't even see a healing, do we? We just see Jesus telling him, get up. And here's what I realized. I'm that guy. So are you. You know, Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners probably number two behind him there. That's who we are. Nothing really lovely about us, nothing worthy about us or deserving, not even in our response to what God has done have we proved him right somehow. I don't think John liked him either. But Jesus does loves him, dies for him. In fact, find in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus believed about him. He is my treasure. And so are you. His treasure. Augustine's book, Confessions, I'll close with this. He writes about his journey as he's searching for who God is or what God is. He doesn't really know. His family had believers in his family, but he had rejected all of those things. So he writes this. He said, I came and asked the question, what is this God? So I asked the earth, and the earth answered me, I am not God, and all the things in the earth made the same confession, and they, and so he said, I asked the sea, and the deeps and the creeping things, and they said, we're not your God. Look higher. 
So I asked the winds that blow and the whole air with it and all that's in the wind. They answered, I'm not God. So I asked the heavens and the sun and the moon and the stars and they all answered, Neither are we God whom you seek. So I asked all those things that entice the senses. Tell me then of this mysterious one that I search for. And all cried out to me in one great voice. God made us. God made you. So I set about to find God and found that I could not find Him until I embraced the mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus who is all over all these things, who was calling me and saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. All the things I pursued and for all their allure and all their promises, none of them brought satisfaction. He says this, I found myself weeping in the bitter sorrow of my heavy burden. And suddenly I heard a voice from a nearby house, a child's voice, a boy or girl, I do not know, but it was sort of a sing-song that repeated over and over again, take and read, take and read. Wiping away my tears, I took this as a divine command and opened to the Scriptures and in silence read the passage on which my eyes first fell, not in rioting or not in drunkenness, not in debauchery and not in impurity, not in contention and not in evil, in envy but put on the Lord Jesus. And in a moment, all that I had been searching for had found me. Jesus found me. He became a new man. Many of us fall into the illusion that something other than God can satisfy us or give our lives purpose or meaning. But we're captivated by self-deception and all of that directs us away from, from where our true longings mean to lead us to rest in Jesus. And so I'll close how I began with Augustine's conclusion. O Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. What's your restlessness this morning? Where are you looking to satisfy your longings? pray that that God would draw us all to His Son, Jesus. Father, I ask this morning that Your Word would not return void, that it would accomplish what it means to accomplish.